This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to a conversation with history. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is John Osman, who served as professor of Egyptology at Heidelberg University from 1976 until 2003. In 2005, he was named Honorary Professor of Cultural and Religious Studies at the University of Constance, where he continues today. His most recent book is From Akhenaten to Moses, Ancient Egypt and Religious Change. He is the 2015 Forster Lecturer at Berkeley. Professor Osman, welcome to Berkeley. Thank you. Where were you born and raised? Well, by chance. Uh, I've been born uh, in Langelsheim, which is a very small city in the middle of Germany, but by chance, because, uh, and I was raised in Lübeck. So I spent my youth during the war in Nazi Germany and in a uh, medieval city, Lübeck at the Baltic Sea, a city of incredible beauty. This is a really uh, outstanding uh, city, or was, because it has been destroyed. The first German city that was destroyed in the Second World War uh, in reaction to the destruction of Coventry by the Germans. So Lübeck had to pay for the destruction of Coventry. Uh, but the churches have been rebuilt and part of the old town. And this was the place where I grew up, where I was raised. And Lübeck was impressive and also formative for me as a child. Uh, first, because of its atmosphere, this medieval atmosphere, and uh, <clears throat> an atmosphere which uh, Thomas Mann in his novels, Buddenbrot, since uh, catched so uh, beautifully, and, uh, and second for its music. So uh, Lübeck <coughs> was and still is uh, a city of music, church mu- music. Oh, these churches had wonderful uh, organs dating from the 15th, 16th, 17th century, and, uh, and a group of musicians that at that time already played on original instruments, instruments uh, <clears throat> from 17th, 18th century. And, uh, and uh, in a tradition that has only become mainstream in Europe after 1970, 80 with Nicolas Arnoncourt and others, at that time they, they were really pioneers. Um, and uh, so my mother, who um, sang in the church choir of the Marienkirche, uh, <clears throat> uh, had close friends in this circle of musicians and took me to all their concerts at the age of three, four, five. And for, for the first two or three years, I was, of course, had, had no sense of this music. I was utterly bored, sitting to the, uh, two or three hours of baroque music. But then, after perhaps two years, um, all of a sudden, this was like a revelation, mm-hmm. the, the beauty of this music. Uh, so, so it sounds like you, you, were, you, were, you were born 
to do classical studies, to be uh, comfortable in exploring history and tradition? Well, I wouldn't say this. So my parents were architects, um, far away from scholarship, academic scholarship. Uh, my my father served as an architect at the war. I must say, <clears throat> since I I grew up in Nazi Germany, I, I think it's important to know about also the the kind of entanglement of the family. With so, and I'm happy enough uh, uh, to be able to say that my Nazi uh, my uh, my parents were strongly opposed against the uh, <clears throat> Nazi uh, government. Uh, um, I stayed with my mother because my father was away in, the, in Finland and my mother lived in constant fear of being denounced for um, her, well, <laughs> dissidence. And um, uh, so this, these uh, first um, seven years of my life, this atmosphere of of fear and uh, anxiety, persecution, also, uh, <clears throat> uh, I think, left uh, deep traces. Um, and um, so I was raised in, in, a, in a family, well, uh, of course, of architects. My mother uh, gave up her study of architecture when she met my father, which was the usual fate of women at that time. Uh, also, um, my family was not only uh, <clears throat> interested in art and especially architecture, but also um, they were a typical specimen of what in German is called Bildungsbürgertum. So Bildung, which is a German word that cannot be translated, erudition or not. Bildung is a very special German phenomenon. And uh, it means being acquainted with a, a canon, a canon of classical writers, Goethe, Schiller and so on, also Shakespeare and Cervantes. So I grew up among these books in the library of my parents. Uh, during a time where there were no children books. This was uh, in the war, so I had to uh, entertain myself with Schiller and Goethe. <laughs> How old were you during the war? During well, the war? I'm, I'm born in 38, so during the war I was uh, two to seven. Mm -hmm. uh, when the war was over, finally, in 45, I was still seven, seven years old. But I have a very clear memory of the enormous, um, uh, how do you call it, Erleichterung, um, when it were not the Russians, but the, the British who came to Lübeck. Lübeck is just at the border. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was a competition from East and West. Who will be first? And my mother, of course, lived in uh, <clears throat> and the fear of being, of course, have, having to face the Russian occupation. But happily enough, it was, it was the Scots who moved in to Lübeck with their um, <clears throat> doodlesack, um, their uh, bagpipes. Bagpipes, yeah. yeah, wonderful. And, and this was such a relief that was the British. And um, 
Yeah, and I was seven years old, and Lübeck was <clears throat> heavily destroyed, and the, the ruins um, were our playground. And uh, our main occupation was to dig in the ruins. So this was my first mm -hmm. encounter with archaeology, mm -hmm. to dig in the ruins for precious things, uh, tiles from the bathrooms, glazed tiles, or... Um, Whatever children will find and will uh, treasure is precious. So how did you make, as you, you grew, you were, you were in school, uh, how, how did you move toward the, the study of, of ancient Egypt? Yeah, well, um, I, I didn't hear anything about ancient Egypt in school. And I was not interested in so much in ancient history. What, what interested me then was only music. And uh, I occupied myself in writing music. Uh, and I even went so far to write a whole opera, which I uh, started studying with my fellow uh, pupils. And what um, was a huge thing, this opera. And uh, we, <clears throat> and it, it took one year to compose it and to study it. Mm. And, and this year, then, it came too close to our Abitur, our final exam in high school in Germany. So the rector of our school forbid any more <laughs> exercises of no this sort. No, no more opera. And so I gave up composing also because, uh, yeah, uh, with uh, growing, let's say, knowledge, I... Uh, became also aware of uh, a certain lack of talent. And so uh, when I came to the university, um, I uh, started with uh, archaeology. Uh, during when I was uh, 16, 17, my, my parents, um, um, uh, my parents were friends of an art historian uh, who was during the Nazi time director of the Kunsthalle, the art museum in Mannheim, and was fired by the Nazis because he acquired too much of uh, paintings which they deemed to be entarted, uh, modern paintings, mm. French Impressionist, but also, of course, Cubism and all this modern art. So he was fired by the Nazis and lived in Heidelberg as an honorary professor. Uh, and, uh, and he was a great friend of my parents, and he took a certain care of me and, and uh, initiated me into his world, which was the tradition of A.B. Warburg. A.B. Warburg, this art historian who invented um, a, special, a special form of... Kulturwissenschaft. German Kulturwissenschaft is, is totally different from what in America is called cultural studies. It has nothing to do with culture as a system of difference, and, but it has to do with context. A study in a given object in all its cultural contexts. Synchronically, who were, who gave the order, what was the function, and so on, but also diachronically. So, and this perhaps laid the foundation of what 
I later began to call cultural memory. This is also a Warburgian concept. And uh, so this, uh, this, our friend, Gustav Friedrich Hartlaub, war, was a um, representative of this school of thought, to study art in all its cultural contexts, not as an isolated phenomenon, but, but um, as an expression of culture. And uh, so, um, and this um, uh, friend who acted as a kind of mentor for me, uh, recommended classical archaeology. So, and, and I started, so I started with classical archaeology, but soon, I, since I had these ideas of context, I had also uh, the impression I should study not only Greek uh, history and art, but everything that uh, was around uh, on the Mediterranean scene, And so I came across a course, an introductory course on hieroglyphs and got hooked immediately. Mm -hmm. This was a kind of seduction, <laughs> such a fascinating script, hieroglyphs. Given your background, the notion of, of digging <laughs> in the beginning, digging, you know, in these yeah. <laughs> uh, ruins, but then also uh, coming to understand the complexity of a whole political, cultural system in, in ancient times. It, it seems to, to be a path that you followed that came naturally, in a yes. way, with a lot of yeah. hard work. Yeah, I didn't follow it consciously, yeah, but yeah. in you retrospect. I like to ask my guests what skills and temperament uh, you think go with the kind of studies you do. How would you advise students? What, what, how should they prepare for doing the work of studying classical Egypt? Uh, and what sort of temperament do they need to have? I'm not a typical Egyptologist. Mm -hmm. So the typical Egyptologist starts at the age of 10 or 12, reading, reading introductions to hieroglyphs under his desk. And... Uh, uh, being fascinated by a kind of cryptography, the hieroglyphs, and so on. And, uh, and then turning to Arabic, the Orient, this kind of Orientalism. Uh, this is the typical way. And uh, I am I'm untypical in having come to Egypt via Greece, the classical tradition, and also uh, uh, being raised in a family of in a way, artists, architecture, and so on, um, without any scholarly background. So uh, uh, what I had to learn, but perhaps I didn't have it to learn, it was perhaps already in me because also in my family I was a kind of stranger with my uh, music and other interests. So what, uh, what is important is a love, a certain love for scholarship, this kind of rather exotic knowledge, and uh, without a certain passion for this kind of exotic knowledge, mm -hmm. it's useless to study Egyptology. It's, it's, not a, um, it's not just a profession, but it, it's, really, it's, it's both. It's a, a hobby and a profession, and you never get rid of it. It's by day and night, you are, uh, you are living in this exotic world. And... Um, 
Uh, and this is also the fascination of it. It is not, it's not our um, own tradition, but another tradition. So first I would recommend is learn as many languages as possible relating to this ancient world and, uh, and to be as fascinated by this kind of activity as possible. Um, and also, uh, uh, I think um, one must, uh, one must uh, have a certain um, uh, interest and uh, likeness, uh, was, um, liking of writing. Right. So the, the, this kind of study really is a, a constant, uh, a constant effort at translating, translating Egyptian texts, translating Egyptian culture, uh, more generally expressed, uh, translating a foreign culture into understandable uh, language. Uh, and um, this expresses why, why I've written so many books, but this is important. So uh, this is constant, this constant effort uh, at uh, articulating in your own language, in the language of your fellow countrymen, what you are uh, finding. In Talk a little about the the intellectual community of Egyptologists. In other words, how do they learn? Uh, in other words, when when do breakthroughs come? Is it based on archaeological finds or the work of other scholars yeah. in the field? And then, in addition, well, in, in addition, it sounds like you cross many disciplines, so th that makes you unique in a sense uh, because of this broader interest in biblical studies, cultural studies, and so on. Yeah, the special thing about Egyptology is that it is not divided in archaeology and philology. Uh, whereas Greek studies and even even now also Mesopotamia, uh, Assyriology, is divided in an archaeological um, field and a philological. So these two fields do not go together. They are separate chairs and universities. Whereas in Egyptology, this wouldn't work. Uh, there are inscriptions on every object. So, uh, and and this I find uh, very rewarding that uh, that script and language go together with art and architecture and so on. So the decisive discoveries or breakthroughs or so in my life were due both both to um, excavation finding new texts. At heart, I'm a philologist, so I, I, I live by texts, by language, and so on. But <clears throat> these texts have to be discovered. They, they have to be excavated. Um, and so um, most of uh, the, for me, really decisive inscriptions and texts or so um, I discovered in uh, Egyptian tombs, tomb inscriptions. And so on. But on the other hand, of course, also the encounters with uh, important teachers and colleagues. I was fortunate enough to spend a year in Paris 
with a teacher, uh, <coughs> Georges Posenaire, who was uh, really a great philologist and discoverer and decipherer of texts and living with these texts and, uh, uh, and, and, and really a passionate uh, philologist and Egyptologist. And, uh, and that's, I think it's at Paris where, where I uh, turned into a real Egyptologist only at Paris at the age of, of 22, late enough. Uh, so uh, this uh, combination of excavation, discovery on the spot, on location, in Z2, the text, on the one hand, well, normal philological work in a library with uh, texts of all sorts. On the other hand, this combination was a very... Uh, fascinating and helped me a lot. And uh, the real breakthroughs, well, this encounter with Pusenea, but uh, also, um, but later, uh, I traveled to Uppsala to, uh, to spend two weeks with a colleague, Torgny um, Seve Söderberg, who had built up in Uppsala an archive of Theban tombs. So Thebes, uh, modern Luxor, the west side uh, is a site where um, five different cemeteries <coughs> uh, exist, uh, starting, uh, as far as date is concerned, starting in the uh, third millennium BCE and continuing until Roman period. Hundreds and hundreds of tombs. And, and this, Seber um, Söderberg collected everything pertaining to this necropolis, so uh, copies, hand copies of inscriptions and photographs and slides. And, and I spent two weeks in this archive. And in this archive, I, uh, uh, I had begun working on a dissertation on Egyptian hymns, hymns to the sun god. And this archive, I discovered hundreds, hundreds of unpublished inscriptions. And, and this, uh, and I'm still. When I uh, <clears throat> uh, when I this morning uh, will give a lecture on the evolution of religious thought in ancient Egypt, I'm still living li on on this discovery in Uppsala. This was a real breakthrough. And then, at that time, uh, one had very little opportunity to go to Egypt as a student. Uh, this was very expensive, or impossible. So I had to wait for my doctoral exam and uh, uh, until I got a, a fellowship, a travel fellowship, and I then went to Egypt, went into all these tombs, which was at that period still possible. Now it's not. They are closed. and You have to apply for the permission to enter, and uh, this is uh, very complicated. But at that time, I was given uh, a bunch of keys and was yeah, left alone. I could go, go in all these tombs and and made copies of hundreds of of these hymns. Uh, this was, um, and then, and then I started uh, uh, my own excavation. Talk a little about this moment of discovery. You know, the the picture of an archaeologist or an Egyptologist 
going into an ancient tomb is is appears again and again in the movies as, yeah. as part of an adventure. <laughs> Talk about your uh, emotions in terms of doing that and then some moment of creative discovery basically yes, what yes. what what is is it is it like it's shown in the movies <laughs> <laughs> so these these tombs uh well they are small tombs they are big tombs and these big tombs are really there they are it's really a, a maze of rooms and corridors staircases and so on all covered with inscriptions um and um what I did first was just uh, sit and uh, with a, uh, a lamp of petrol oil <laughs> and, and copy these inscriptions. And I was, uh, um, and every day I was able to, every day I was able to, to enter another tomb to find other inscriptions. Um, this was really breathtaking. Yeah. But also hard, also hard work because it's very hot in these tombs, and most of them are full of bats. And uh, this is not well. There's a certain uh, kind of um, it smells bad these bats, but they are also sort of frightening if there's a little space and they fly around and so on. So um, it. Um, uh, demands a certain <laughs> a certain amount of heroism <laughs> to do this work. Um, and uh, so it's a combination of um, fascination and exhaustion. And, uh, and exhaustion? Can, exhaustion, yes, yes, you are exhausted yeah, after <laughs> a day spent in these tombs. It's a very special experience to enter these tombs and to find these texts and to... Uh, and then when we started excavation, of course, this is another kind of experience. The normal excavation work can be extremely boring. You spend hours and hours and hours in, uh, on the site and nothing happens. The, 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 the usual, usual stuff which is excavated, which comes to light and which has to be drawn and photographed and copied. And, uh, but all this is routine work and can be... Um, um, you start at, seven, at six o'clock in the morning. This goes until two o'clock in the afternoon, hours and hours, and, hours. and then all of a sudden something really sensational appears. This is once in uh, ten years or so. <laughs> um, this, um, yeah, this is perhaps too pessimistic. Let's say once in two years. Mm -hmm. So, so it sounds like. A kind of a mixture of courage and patience, yes. <laughs> but also you're you're coming there with a background that allows you to see the significance of something new. I mean, yes. if you didn't if yes. you didn't have that yes. that yeah. previous hard work before you get to the, the right, yes, right, yeah. I, I did this excavation. Um, I started, as I told you, I started with a dissertation on Egyptian hymns. I made a collection of uh, these. And so Egyptian hymns, this means a text of adoration to a certain deity. And, and, uh, and these texts uh, display the, the theology of, of this deity. And uh, uh, what I discovered, very soon discovered, was that um, there was a, a kind of development 
that uh, they, these texts were not only repeating the same motifs or, uh, all over, but there was a very uh, um, clear development leading first to this monotheistic revolution by Achnaten, uh, which was a radicalization of a certain... Um, a certain movement that uh, went before and and continued afterwards, uh, and then led to a, a type of theology, um, uh, which this was my thesis, um, uh, survived in Greek texts and was handed down to the Renaissance and the 18th century, mm -hmm. so there was a kind of continuity um, by the medium of, of, the, of Greek um, uh, philosophers, travelers, uh, intellectuals, who, uh, and also, of course, uh, Egyptian priests who learned Greek and uh, tried to translate their theology into uh, Greek language and Greek philosophy also. There was a kind of certain mixture of Neoplatonism and Egyptian theology in these texts. And this was what fascinated me. And I think I, I have discovered this uh, uh, development of thought. Um, and, um, uh, and I discovered it uh, uh, in these tomb inscriptions. The great advantage of tomb inscriptions is that the texts are dated and uh, located and also socially uh, located. So uh, the texts are different if they, uh, if they appear in the tomb of a high priest or uh, an officer in the administration. Um, a high-ranking officer or a low-ranking officer. So th this make, makes um, um, discernible differences. And uh, so differences in time, in space, and uh, also in social structure. It, it sounds like this harkens back to your mentor, who taught you yeah. cultural studies yes. in mm -hmm. the in the meaning in the yeah. German sense that you 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 in Egyptology you have the artifacts that uh, lets you contextualize yeah. what what you're you're finding. Mm -hmm. What one of the themes in your essays, this collection of essays, is the evolution of ideas in. Uh, religion, especially in Egypt. Mm. Talk a little about that, because you make an important distinction between how in a theology you get an evolution of ideas, a gradual change, and uh, this leads to your discussion of a period in which there was monotheism in, in the Egyptian religion. Yeah. I don't believe in a general... Um, evolution in religion and uh, an evolution from polytheism to monotheism. Also, I, I don't believe in this general concept, but I believe in an evolution of ideas which has certain uh, presuppositions, uh, uh, requirements. So uh, in order to have a, an evolution of ideas, there must 
be a discourse. And a discourse requires that um, these um, that uh, the statements are preserved in writing and accessible to later generations that can build on these earlier statements and develop the ideas and also reject them, react to them. So that the, uh, and, and these are the conditions also writing, accessibility, and also uh, a kind of professionalization. Um, uh, and all, all these conditions were given in Egypt at that time. There was a professional class of uh, literate people, priests and, uh, um, and scribes, at the administration, these high and middle-ranking officials, uh, a class of literate professionals who were keenly interested in ideas about the divine and who not only had uh, hymns inscribed in their tombs, but obviously um, who took uh, an individual part in the composition of these hymns because these hymns were, were fairly individual. And um, so we have all the conditions for a discourse to develop. And, uh, and I think this explains the, this uh, evolution of ideas uh, between 1500 and 1100 BCE. Um, it does not continue, and also what went before was very repetitive. But during these 400 years, there was a real uh, development. And, and, uh, and this uh, development uh, or evolution of ideas reacted to certain historical experiences. And I think the most decisive experience was the breakdown of the of the traditional image of the world, Egypt coextensive with the with creation, with the creation, the, the ordered world surrounded by chaos. This was the traditional image, uh, and uh, in <clears throat> in the middle of the second millennium, uh, Egypt was um, uh, ruled by foreign invaders, the so-called Hyksos, who brought to Egypt in, in new techniques of warfare and, uh, uh, and, and, and were, were uh, subsequently expelled by a kind of liberation war. Um, and, and then uh, uh, Egypt, by expelling these Hyksos, uh, inherited their kingdom. So their Asiatic, Middle Eastern uh, uh, <clears throat> realm. So uh, Egypt expanded to the south, to the north, became an empire and uh, uh, came into context with other empires, the Hittites, the Babylonians, Mitanni, which is, was uh, then uh, Assyria, uh, and entered in also in diplomatic uh, relationships, correspondences, and so on. So they learned that the ordered 
world uh, did not end with the Egyptian borders, mm -hmm. but uh, was, um, <clears throat> uh, and this led to a kind of universalist thinking. Uh, and uh, so the idea that the creator was responsible not only for Egypt, but also for the, these other countries. And um, uh, uh, which meant also that the, the, uh, that the sun, the sun god, became more and more important but because the sun was the visible symbol of universal activity, rulership. And um, so that the traditional polytheistic image um, uh, became more and more... Uh, challenged, and um, the position of the of the of the sun god uh, um, <clears throat> became more and more important until Akhenaten um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, introduced the radicalization of this image, uh, um, uh, abolished all the other gods uh, in favor of the sun god which for him was not the traditional sun god. The traditional sun god was, uh, uh, well, not only the sun. The sun was the, the visible symbol of a deity that was hidden behind. But for Akhenaten, it was the sun, and only the sun. This is a ruler of, of Egypt yeah. in about 13... 1350, 1360, 1540. Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah. And uh, so this was a monotheism, but uh, perhaps rather a monism, because the sun was just the sun. It was not a personal deity. Um, for the king, it was. So, so there, there was a, a, a personal relationship between the sun, the father, the king, the sun, but not for human beings. They were on the same plane as the animals, the, the plants, and so on, living by the light and also by the time. The sun not only uh, emits light, but also time by its motion. Um, this was the idea of Akhenaten, that every, uh, um, the whole reality can be explained as the activity of the sun. So the other gods are unnecessary. They are just so, uh, fictions. In, in your work, you make a comparison and a distinction between uh, Akhenaten and Moses. Talk. So in other yeah. words, there are some striking similarities, but striking differences. Yeah. There's one similarity, which is the um, abolition of other gods. Um, and I think this is a very bold step to negate the existence of gods. And Akhenaten was the first one to take this step, to just to negate the existence of other gods, with uh, whom Egyptians had lived for more than 2,000 years. This was a very bold step. And, and then we meet the same negation uh, of the existence of other gods, the exclusion of the worship of other gods. We meet, of course, in the Bible. Um, this is the, um, 
the one point of similarity, but there are other points of huge difference that exclude the possibility of any historical influence. There is none. There's no causal influence of these Akhenaten. Uh, <clears throat> on Moses. On Moses. Yes. Not at all. Because the Moses project is just the opposite. It's not about cosmology, about the sun, about... Uh, it's not uh, Moses' question, and Moses, of course, is, is a symbolic figure. It's not a historical figure. So uh, Moses' question was not... Uh, how reality comes about and uh, which, what energies uh, are active in uh, the world. But, uh, but his question was um, the covenant. Uh, so uh, this covenant between a God and a people. Uh, uh, a God acting not, uh, not as a cosmic energy, but in history, as a historical, as a ruler, as a partner a partner in a political treaty uh, and, and uh, alliance. So, totally different idea. That God is our uh, <clears throat> ally, mm -hmm. <laughs> our ruler. Uh, it, it, it is about uh, the um, genesis uh, of a people, of a nation, the Israelite nation, and not about the world. It's not God the Creator. This is the book of Genesis. This is, this is not Yahweh. This is Elohim. But uh, the idea of Yahweh as the leader of a people uh, whom he liberates from Egyptian sla uh, sla slavery. Um, uh, so this is a political idea, a social idea, an idea of social identity. And nothing of this is, uh, uh, has... Uh, Uh, anything to do with Amarna, with Akhenaten, and so on. This, uh, Akhenaten, this is cosmology, and here uh, this is more um, religion in, in the sense we understand this word, uh, covenant. Uh, <clears throat> and um, uh, so, um, but still, there is this element of Uh, iconoclasm, and one could uh, go farther and say of theoclasm, of the destruction of a divine world. Uh, and uh, and in later time, th thousand years later, in retrospect, in memory, Moses and Akhenaten came together in Egyptian memory. There was a, a kind of Uh, distorted memory of Akhenaten. Akhenaten, of course, uh, after his death, uh, fell victim to a damnatio memoriae. All his, the traces of his existence were destroyed, erased, uh, his name erased from the king list. So there, there was no memory of the existence of Akhenaten, but of course there was the experience, traumatic experience of his destruction of religion. A vague memory of this trauma um, stayed on in Egyptian and, and reappeared in texts, in Greek texts of a much later period. And in one of these Greek texts, um, Akhenaten and Moses come together because the, this text by Manetho 
he, it, it doesn't speak of Akhenaten because the name was erased from the king list, but it's quite evident that uh, the, uh, this certain Ozarzif, of whom this text speaks, is no other than Akhenaten. His deeds uh, um, uh, correspond exactly and the time correspond exactly to the Amarna period. And this text says that after having uh, after having uh, uh, having given laws to his followers, he assumed the name of Moses. So uh, uh, in the late period, um, the uh, traumatic memory of this monotheistic episode in Egypt. Uh, was brought into relation with what they then learned about the biblical monotheism. Uh, which raises an, an, an important area which you've worked on, which is this whole idea of the canonization of uh, a religious text the, as, as key to the survival of a religion over time. So, so there's almost a, a kind of an evolution of ideas where uh, a, a text is written, writing is very important, that text is made holy, but to the side is a body of work that examines yeah. uh, that holy text, yeah. an exegesis. And, and what you're suggesting is this, uh, this development of religion is key to remembrance uh, to cultural memory, which is the key to the resilience and survival of a religion. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, this is a process which did not pay, uh, take place in Egypt, but in Israel. In Egypt also as far as Alexandria is concerned and the Greek tradition, but uh, which also took place in India and China. And very much at the same time. Uh, uh, and uh, and this means that a certain body of texts uh, were uh, a certain body of text was canonized, so uh, <clears throat> declared uh, uh, well unchangeable, and uh, that every further change must take the form of commentary. And, and I think the the. Uh, um, Introduction of commentaries. This is the decisive step. That um, um, not only, of course, there were texts around for thousands of years, but uh, the step of canonizing these texts, of uh, prohibiting any further alteration. So the uh, the the words must stay, and. Uh, and and then that every other uh, let's say development must take the form of commentary. This decisive step um, uh, occurred twice in uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean and in India at the fourth, third, second century BCE. The rise of commentary. So we see that that. Uh, <coughs> This corpus of biblical texts became canonized, and uh, so, for example, in Judaism, the Torah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Yes. Yeah. The Torah. But then a Talmud 
in a midrash which comments on yeah these are the comments which are, uh, until then the comments were written into the text so the biblical texts um, uh, show the traces of of growth over uh, centuries with glosses inserted and and also uh, the combination of different sources documents and so on and all this has come to an end at the 3rd 2nd century BCE uh, and uh, so the text was fixed and uh, and this gave rise to commentaries and the same in Alexandria and of course in obvious um, relations because uh, Alexandria was also the place of a strong Jewish community so they knew in Alexandria what was going on in Palestine and um and in Alexandria the library of Alexandria where, where all literature of the ancient world was collected and uh in order to uh, to master this uh, huge mass of books uh, the the people in charge introduced a distinction between the books to be treated and the books to be excluded so collected but uh, in an archive but not treated hoi tratomenoi the books to be treated and treatment means commentary and um so in alexandria uh, there <clears throat> uh, was created the, the canon of classical greek literature and um very much at the same time and uh, in india uh, the pali canon of the buddhist writings uh, and buddhism then went to china and gave rise to huge huge bodies of commentary buddhist commentary daoist commentaries confucianist commentaries um and uh, it i think it was this it was these commentaries that brought about uh, a change a change of um uh yeah, of mentality and thought which later Karl Jaspers called the axial age uh, Karl Jaspers was not interested in the media of transmission but only in the ideas um uh but was it it was not a question of ideas it was really a question of media of writing and canonization and exegesis and so on that made that brought about a new form of continuity that later times were able to relate to the past a new form of relating to the past also to a past uh, given a new kind of normativity that uh, that the past was uh, uh, believed to be the foundation of uh, the classical foundation of every changing present so that uh, <clears throat> that, that the philosopher whitehead could call uh, all western philosophy is just a collection of footnotes to plato so this relation to to the classics um and uh as as a uh, relation to the past as an uh opening of the future 
so we can go further because we see what went before. Uh, so th these ideas of intellectual progress and of modernity and so um, requires uh, 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 requires uh, access to the past. Um, yeah, in order to go on in the same direction. So, so in, in a way, writing is crucial. The canonization of writing yeah. and the exegesis uh, yeah. of 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 the writing. And so, in a way, your your uh, your work as an Egyptologist is informed by your knowledge and work as a student of comparative religion. Because yeah. Egypt shows you what didn't happen, uh, but in the case of the Jews, which you focus on in, in your essay, mm. uh, the story of Exodus, the story of Moses, the, even the, the ritual play of the Seder, which celebrates Exodus in addition to the book, in, in that way you, you come to understand what allows a religion to survive in yeah. modern times. Yeah. Um. This transition from what I call ritual continuity, which is the case of Egypt. Egypt uh, <clears throat> uh, was a civilization of incredible stability, starting in uh, 3000 <clears throat> before Christ and ending somewhere 300 AD in the Roman Empire. Um, uh, and this stability was based on rituals. Uh, rituals that um, implied great bodies of text. This was, uh, uh, there were no ritual actions that were not accompanied by recitation. So this was, uh, these Egyptian rituals were uh, uh, also um, a very uh, a verbal activity, recitation. But um, <clears throat> uh, the backbone of continu continuity was ritual action. And this uh, was due to, I think, all these ancient civilizations um, um, uh, all these civilizations, religions of the ancient world, except uh, Israel. Uh, Israel that was forced by the Babylonian exile to live on without temple, without ritual, without um, state and kingdom and so on. And uh, who went into the Babylonian exile with already the emergent canon of the Torah. And then during the Babylonian exile, they, they elaborated this emergent canon and, and invented, by doing so, invented an alternative type of continuity, textual, text-based. So uh, the recitation, the reading, the exegesis of text uh, as a uh, substitute for ritual continuity. And when they came back to Jerusalem and, uh, and rebuilt the temple, um, uh, the... Uh, the Torah became the, the, the kernel of the emergent Bible with these three um, parts of Torah and prophets and 
and and writings, and uh, <clears throat> and eventually exegesis. But all this started. This started in the Babylonian exile and was forced by exterior historical circumstances, by catastrophe, by the destruction of every other um, basis of continuity. And then became, of course, the model for, for Christianity and Islam and other religions. Regrettably, our time is up, but, but you really have helped us in this uh, discussion and conversation to kind of understand what we can learn from a religion in the ancient past that is no longer living, but also uh, how the adaptation over time of other religions allowed there to survive in, in the present. So it's, it's really about comparative religion uh, uh, as a sideline, so to speak, yeah. in your work. Yeah. Uh, first, <laughs> well, of course, uh, um, being a Christian and uh, having, of course, uh, been grown up with biblical texts, not so much in my family, but uh, the school and so on, um, I uh, studied Egyptian texts um, with a kind of implicit comparison mm -hmm. and uh, found uh, during the first, let's say, 20 years of my Egyptological activity, uh, I was struck by the parallels that uh, in Egypt the same kinds of texts, so that so many parallels to the Bible, and only only afterwards I became aware of the categorical differences and of the revolutionary newness of the biblical text. So this was again comparison, but in a different key. Uh, first the the similarities, and then the differences. Well, on that note, I want to thank you, uh, Professor Osman, for taking the time to be with us in this really fascinating discussion of, uh, of your work. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.